Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, this week my guest is Irish Times Berlin correspondent Derek Scally, whose book The Best Catholics in the World has just been published. The book, as I suppose you could say it says on the tin, is about the relationship between this country and the Catholic Church. And I have to say it's written in a highly attractive style that manages to include Derek's personal journey, reportage of some of the big events in the church and some of the big figures within the church. And it also asks some very pertinent questions about how the church shaped this country and how at this stage can the country come to terms with its complicated past. Derek, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hello there, Mick. Derek, fascinating read, as I said, and I have to say that as somebody myself whose childhood was, I suppose you could say, informed is the best word, by, by some of the uh, the strictures, the, the mystery and the fear that were part of growing up in an Ireland that was still in thrall to the church. I found it very interesting. I'll come back to a bit of that later. But yourself, you set out on a journey, would strike me, of some sorts, Derek, in exploring the role the church had in the evolution of this country and society. And I just wonder, how much closer were you to answers to that by the time you completed the project? Yeah, a very good question. I think I think what I learned is that there wasn't one Catholic Ireland. I came from Northside Dublin um, in the 70s and 80s and somebody who grew up in rural Ireland at that time or somebody who grew up in the 50s had a very different Ireland. And I think we've been, it's just exhausting the last 30 years of everyone sort of insisting that the way they view it is the way it was and the people they think are to blame or to, are, are the ones who are to blame. What I've realised is we won't get one version. There will be four million, five million Catholic Irelands that we remember. Um, and I think the most interesting thing I found, which left the case open, uh, I couldn't close this file because after 30 years of arguing about this, we actually still don't, we haven't yet to define our terms. What do we mean when people say the church? Um, I'll give you an example. When I was interviewing people, whether it was Yvonne Murphy behind several of the biggest reports into clerical sexual abuse, or um, Sean Ryan, who was involved in the Ryan report, even abuse survivors, I, I found myself struggling when they talked about the church and the state and us and them. I found myself reverting to Venn diagrams. I said, right, who is what? Is the church inside the Irish people? Is the state and the church overlapping as Venn diagrams? How much overlap was there? Was one subsumed by the other? Was Ireland surrounding the church and the state? Or did the church exist off on its own separate to and we actually still don't know there is still no agreement and when people talk about the church i always say who do you mean do you mean those irish passport holders who went through irish schools who are living down the road and who are us or do you mean some sort of aliens that you maybe think came in a spaceship and tormented our children and forced us to go to mass on a sunday but we sort of we've beaten them off and they've taken off again and left us alone you know they did terrible things to us so actually what's fascinating is i think we're only at the end of the overture those reports the legal reports 
that was sort of taking stock. That was defining what what we have in the in in the files. And now the debate actually begins, and that's exactly exhausting. I mean, I read the book myself, and I'm amazed by the energy I had, but I'm exhausted by the last 30 years. But could it be that we've actually spent the last 30 years and we actually still don't know what we're talking about? And I think that's the most fascinating thing. And we may never get to that point because, we, as I said, we have four million Ireland's, but I think we need to know what do we mean when we talk about the church? You know, what do you mean when you talk about the church? Do you mean the priests, the bishops, the nuns? Or do you mean how they relate to us, you know, us, the Irish people vis-a-vis the church? Or were they always us to begin with? Have we just, have we just othered them uh, because it's more convenient for our narrative purposes today? Uh, back when it was the glory days, they were our priests, they were our nuns, they were our missionaries. So at some point we flip the narrative and uh, to decide why and when and how do we proceed with that narrative now? I think those questions, unfortunately, are still uh, left open. Yeah, and I think there there was an element to that recently, Derek, with the the publication of the uh, Commission of Investigation into the Mother and Baby Homes, chaired by, as you mentioned, Yvonne Murphy. She also chaired some of the other reports. And something that emerged from that was, you know, initially, and I think it was the Taoiseach might have mentioned it, and I don't know how it was taken up, and there were suggestions in the report itself that um, this was beyond the church and the state, that society, as it was termed, had to take a share of the blame. There was a lot of pushback against that. And on one level, it struck me, was this a question of society, if if that was separate, <laughs> basically having this passive role and just looking on as these crimes were committed. Yet at the same time, you know, those high walls behind which were these mother and baby homes, not to mention the Magdalene laundries, etc. You know, people had to wonder what was going on there. Yeah, I think, again, it's a bit like we still have not defined terms. Everyone launches into their version, but people use, for instance, guilt and shame as if they're interchangeable. They're not. Guilt, the church, as church institutions, religious orders are guilty. The state is guilty as as a co-conspirator in this. So citizens, ordinary individual citizens are not guilty. You can't put an ordinary citizen who is afraid of their job, afraid of what would happen if they report in front of a court and say, you know, you're to blame for this. And then we get into blame and responsibility. We're really good on blame in Ireland. All we want to know is who's to blame for this. And I think you need to ask, uh, instead of talking about guilt and blame, I think you need to talk about shame and responsibility. Shame, guilt is like a, a prison. You're put into prison, you've done something wrong, you will serve your sentence, you'll be released. Shame is how you feel or how you've been made to feel because you have been put, you, you have acted a certain way that is beyond the moral norm. And many of these people in these institutions, whether it was laundries or mother and baby homes, they were made to feel shame. Society decided they were shameful. They were shamed. They took this shame on. And many of them will have that for their entire lives. Uh, But what I found interesting on the journey is I met an awful lot of ordinary people who, whether they're taxi drivers or social workers or anything else, and they they are carrying, these are ordinary people. They didn't have any run-ins with the church. They were just quiet people getting on with hopefully having a quiet life. They knew to keep their mouths shut and their heads down. And a lot of those people are dealing with a shame or a sense of, did I have any responsibility to that girl I saw in trouble? Could I have done something? Should I have done something? Will I ever know? And those people have nowhere to go. So we can, I mean, I think the guilt question and the mother and baby home report was so, I think, problematic because the guilt question is quite clear. And the state and the church as as institutions, as um, religious orders and so on, their guilt is quite clear. Um, but the state is playing a double game. It, on the one hand, says, yes, this is terrible, but 
that's the politicians. The civil servants are, are in background, are acting with impunity and denying access to files. So the, the Irish government wants to have it both ways, our elected officials. Um, but I think, again, getting back to where I started, we're throwing terms around and we need to be clear, guilt and shame, blame and responsibility. So I personally think at the end of the day, I'd like to hear a discussion about responsibility and what responsibility do we have towards remembering our past? And I think if we can enable people in Ireland to reflect on their own history, their own biography, their particular place and time in Catholic Ireland, wherever that was in Ireland, Ask, and, and that's what I'm hoping with this book. By it, I'm trying to be sort of honest and personal and be fair and encourage people to reflect on their own biography. And they'll all have people over a certain age will all have some memory of something or someone. And then they can ask in a concrete say, that day, that time I saw that thing, was I able to help that girl or did I just, was I so afraid I couldn't? How did I feel at the time? Was I, was I justified? Was I actually quite smart not to do anything? Or could I have done something? And I think that's where we move into a more mature relationship with our past. I mean, anything is, anyone who's guilty needs to be put before a court, but the whole shame and responsibility, that's where things get messy. And I think only people can really resolve that for themselves. So that people push back against the mother and baby home and the state saying, oh, well, everyone in society was to blame. That's not the job of the, the, the government and the state. They have quite enough blame and guilt to deal with. They don't really need to start spreading it around. But people pushing back and saying, that's nothing to do with me. And younger people, I noticed in the debate, a lot of younger people saying, this is nothing to do with me. I'm not taking on your shame. That's where I, as somebody living in Germany, that's where the alarm bells start to ring. Because if you feel you have nothing to do with what happened in your country in the past, you're cherry picking your past and you are leaving yourself wide open to abuses because lots of the dynamics of Catholic Ireland are alive and well, and they're active in us today. And we call them Irish, but they're actually a product of our Irish Catholic background. And if you're refusing to take them on, you're refusing to take on responsibility for remembering the past and how we remember the past, um, we have learned essentially nothing with that approach. Very true. And I have to say, reading the book, you know, and I was brought back myself to my own childhood and the kind of relationship. I grew up in the southwest corner of the country in the 70s. You know, it's fairly rural. Mm. But I actually remember one incident and it just very briefly came to mind. At, yeah. at one stage, um, his Christian brother in the school, and he mentioned that uh, people who left Mass at Holy Communion shouldn't bother going at all. Now, my father, perhaps for his generation, was not a religious man, and he frequently, if not always, left at half time, as we used to call it, Holy Communion. And he would have taken me with him, which was grand. But I have a distinct memory that when I heard that, I was overcome with this idea that my old man was condemned, he was doomed, he was going to hell. And for a nine or a ten-year-old to to take that on board at that stage, you know, when you think about it in that context, and that's the kind of fear that was used. And just by complete contrast, my own young fella, he, uh, one of me, they go to multi-denominational school. And I asked him there a couple of years ago what he knew about uh, Jesus Christ. And he said... Uh, but there was that thing with the brunch, he said. And I said, what, what are you talking about? The brunch? What, what's this about? And I copped after a while. He was talking about the Last Supper. <laughs> he just knew it was a meal that wasn't breakfast, dinner or tea and he mixed it up. But the contrast in terms of today, what children are growing up in, and notwithstanding that the, the, the majority of primary schools even are still under the Catholic patronage, the contrast between that and the Ireland 
I grew up in a few years and you, Derek, it's fascinating the difference, you know, I mean, apart from countries that perhaps were under the likes of communism and that you'd wonder whether that quick evolution in societal thinking is, is evident in other places at all. It's in, it's, it's in all societies. I mean, what I notice in Ireland is just people don't even, I, don't, I didn't even know where to begin with this book. I just had this niggle that something's not right here. We've moved, we've had a, an epoch shift in my lifetime uh, and I kind of got the last of the Catholic childhoods. I was born in 1977. I said, this is not natural. Nobody is talking. I mean, uh, when you live in the country, I think it's less noticeable because you know, you're just getting on with life. But I was going back regularly. We had an abusing priest in our parish. And in that micro sense, but also in the wider sense, there was no debate. There is no debate. I, I don't think it's because people are, are hiding something actively. They're just busy. We've had an economic crash. We've got a pandemic now. People are struggling with their mortgages. People are just trying to get on. But I think for the 40-something generation now, we're sort of a bridge between the old Ireland. I mean, you're a few years on me, but a bridge to the old Ireland. And we have an opportunity to talk to people about what they saw, felt about then. And I'm passing it on to younger kids because, I mean, they look at this and it's like stories from the dark side of the moon. But if we don't encourage them to be curious about this past because we, we ourselves don't know what to say, um, we are really, really damaging. I think our, we are so proud of our history when we're victims. We will talk forever about being victims. But when, when we get into sort of compliance or deference or complicity, suddenly things get awkward. And I think when, when Ireland, uh, we're, we're entering into sort of the debate now, a centenary of, of the Civil War, that's when Irish history gets messy. That's when brother is against brother and there are no clear perpetrators and victims. And I think maybe that will be like a good warm up. It will encourage us to realise the grey tones in our history. And then I think maybe we will be well equipped to move on to what happened then, which was the church takeover and, and the buy-in from the population. Um, so I think for the 40s, and my ideal reader is the 40-something who's got kids growing up and they're saying, God, they're asking about the First Communion now, what do I do? Uh, and feeling the peer pressure, if we've all moved on and aren't so modern and cosmopolitan, why do still people feel the social pressure to do the done thing, which is, you know, the done thing now is not to go to Mass and to get the First Communion. You know, people are still feeling these pressures that we have always felt in Ireland because of doing the done thing. And, you know, 30 years ago, the pressure was to go to Mass. Now, the, almost the pressure is to not say to people that you go to Mass. So uh, for the 40-somethings, yeah, we were sort of stuck in the middle. We don't really know. Actually, I was surprised how little I understood about Catholicism. I just assumed, like Irish, you know, we assume we're, we're, we're trapped in a room with it for so long, it, we must absorb it. But we know from Irish how little many of us pick up. And it's the same with Catholicism. So for the 40-something, 50-something generation with kids with teenagers um i mean just equip yourself and encourage discussion because otherwise they will we will have a generation saying this has nothing to do with us and that's where that's where things start to repeat very true and you also explore the history and i what i found very interesting was it seems that a point where the uh, evolution of power in irish society well 20th century irish society you trace it back to just after the famine and a figure whose name I knew, but I never realised how central he was to the whole thing. That was Paul Cullen, the Archbishop of Dublin. And you've a lovely quote there about 1850. Under Cullen, Ireland's Catholic Church identified and moved quickly to fill deep-seated needs of the people for order, safety, pride, education and economic security. This institution, unlike any other, offered the promise of status, salvation and consolation in the desolation of post-famine Ireland. 
effectively they took over the shop at that stage. But who's they? Yeah, good question. That's very well said. No, we, we, uh, a group of people who are well-educated, look respectable, tapped into our deep-seated trauma after the famine, and they colluded with middle-class Ireland to decide there would be no more subdivision of land because subdivision meant starvation. How do we do that? We control inheritance. How do we control inheritance? By turning sex into a trap. And um, as soon as sex, Joe Lee, the historian, described uh, Ireland of that period turned sex into a snare. As soon as you put your foot wrong, you were just caught. And so it was in, in Ireland's economic needs to have a certain type of structure. And Catholic teaching uh, brought by Paul Cullen from Rome, it was a very narrow, very, it was sort of a mixture of uh, sort of narrow, Catholic, the narrowest kind of Catholicism and sort of Victorian views from the UK where respectability was everything. And that just chimed with what Ireland needed at that moment. And it, the church brought in orders, it brought in religious orders, that meant hospitals, that meant schools. And the priests were suddenly, you know, they sort of polished their shoes and brushed their hair. Suddenly they weren't these wild men priests anymore. They were wearing the clerical garb as we knew it. They brought in the sacred heart. They brought in all that we assume is sort of age old Catholic. No, it's 19th century, middle of the 19th century. And it just, it took off because it was clearly what people wanted. It clearly was what people needed. There's always this view that they imposed something on us. And, you know, Rome has always been far further away than Irish people like to think. Like, it's, it's I'm sorry to say, Rome doesn't really care about Ireland. It never did. Uh, and this notion that Rome ruled or something, you know, we desperately were looking for it. And uh, it, it, it was just the right place. They were just in the right place at the right time. And these were Irish people. He, Paul Cullen, came from, he spent 30 years in Rome, but he came back and he brought this very, you know, defensive, devout, deferent, Catholicism, but he obviously was pushing out an open door or it wouldn't have taken off. Yeah, and the thing I find, I've always found interesting in relation to that, Derek, because when you come forward to the revolutionary period and, you know, th- there's various theories abound about um, mm. the leaders in 1916 and last leaders and even go on and Collins, last leader, and then the, 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 some people describe it as a counter-revolution where the conservative element took over. But I've always been of the view that Ireland was so conservative, principally through the type of strictures you were talking about in the church, that it didn't matter who would have lived one way or the other, that the, the whole the church had on, the direction the country was going to go in at that point was nearly predestined. And, and it was, to a large extent, within that framework of the church, if you want to put it that way. So you're saying it was inevitable that things would go this way because the church had such power over the politicians? I would think so. Or let me put it this way, I, I could not see a scenario where there were different personalities whom could have brought the country in a different direction mm. purely on the basis that the, the role of the church was so central to people's lives at that stage. Yes, I mean, I mean, even up until very recently, I mean, when you talk to somebody like Michael Woods, I mean, um, he's you know, a former minister for education and social welfare. I mean, he also came from a background in the 70s and 80s that if you wanted to end your political career quickly, you know, you just went against what the church mm. wanted. But what was the church doing? Was the church, the church felt it was so strong and it had such an impunity because it felt it had the people behind it. And there are many cases in Irish history over the last decades where the people were behind the church. So the church was not an alien body that was, you know, brainwashing people. The church was actually representing people's views on social issues. I mean, we we celebrate the um, 
you know, the marriage equality referendum or people are enthusiastic about the abortion referendum, but like we never really want to talk about why did we insert that into the constitution to begin with. You know, we did that. That wasn't some Godzilla didn't come and force us to do that. And this notion that it's come from outside or that the church is an alien force. Uh, you know, imposing its will on the society. I, I, I didn't look too much at the revolutionary period, but I, I did look at the early, the early decades of independence um, with Rome. And, you know, you see from the start, people, early politicians, early diplomats uh, in the free state and the republic going to Rome. And always, we always talk about, you know, this... Um, uh, we are your, your, your humble servant and so on. And this terrible craven language towards, um, the, towards the Holy See, towards the Pope. And yet there's also many episodes where um, Rome was getting, as, as Dublin saw it, interfering in Irish politics. They sent an envoy to Ireland to sort of check out both sides of the treaty um, debate, which and Ireland slipping into civil war, and Ireland, the they sent uh, Dublin sent out uh, the minister for external affairs at the time to to dress them down in Rome and say, don't you dare interfere in Irish politics. So this notion that we had absolutely no, we had no um, agency, that we had no, we were sort of beholden to them to their will. Um, it really doesn't stand up because when we had as much church or as much Rome uh, rule as we wanted, and I think the same is the case in Ireland, this notion that somehow Irish history took a, a, another path that we didn't want because the bishops were dictating the show. They were dictating, you know, they, they were dictating as much as they, they knew they could get away with, and what which was what the people wanted. So, you know, the us and them narrative is very, very deep, but... Uh, and there was, I, I don't mean to play down how much power these people had and the powerlessness most people felt towards them. But, you know, at some point there's always pushback. Irish people don't take too much nonsense for too long. True, that is true. Yeah, it, it is It is very interesting, just the, the, the dynamic there, the relationship and who were the leaders and who were the followers and, and, and did they just draw the power from the people, which I think there's definitely a, a huge element. Well, I, it's, it, it, it's, it's a continuum. I mean, I, I, mean I, I always am struck by how now... You know, sort of the victim and survivors end of the continuum. If you look at it, sort of perpetrators one and victims of the other, you know, there's an awful lot of people crowding around the victims and the survivors down at one end, and everyone wants to say now that they were helpless. But what all about those those opportunists in Irish Catholic life? You know, the shop owners, the business people, the politicians who knew it was in their interest to be close to the church. You know, they're far, in my mind, they're far closer to the perpetrator uh, complicity end on the spectrum. But most people don't want to view themselves that way. Everyone would much rather view themselves now as powerless. And this was imposed on us. But I think that's, you know, that's just patronising. That's just, we're just lying to ourselves. Do you see that so in Derek, an element, a, a class element to what you might call a hierarchy of culpability? Maybe that's not the best way of putting it. But in terms of, as you, you, you mentioned, you know, certain sections of society were closer to to the uh, to the hierarchy or the church or whatever at the time, and and, and rather than identifying with the victims, was there a class element in it? Yeah, I think I think the class element is one of the great unexplored issues of our of this. I mean, um, there's been amazing books put out in the US recently that you know the history of US is not about race; it's about class, and I think you can say the same in Ireland. I mean, most people who grew up in, a, in a, you know Catholic schools. Um, there's, you know, religious who were working in those schools, at least in my experience, they almost had a sixth sense. They could sniff out who was the doctor's daughter, 
they'd know, or they'd know, or they could, you know, who was who was middle class. You know, in my case, who was from the private houses and who was from the corporation houses, and the kids from the corporation houses got a whole different experience of education and the snobbery which came in. I would say, really, in in the mid nineteenth century, with this Victorian moralistic, devout, deferent Catholic Church. Um, that was there, and we've never really addressed that because that would, of course, um, go against our notion that we're a classless society and we're a republic. And you know, Ireland's middle class, you know, the squeezed middle class. Well, the middle class was not was putting the squeeze on quite a lot of other people in Irish history, using its um, you know its sons and daughters who are going into into religious orders and institutions. So, yeah, the class element has never really been explored. Uh, you know, I've I've always been struck when you hear of clerical sexual abuse. I'd be interested if you could superimpose, um, you know, the level, the concentration of abusers, and uh, you know, the income charts of Ireland. And it'd be interesting to see. You know, I, I rarely heard of of so many abuse survivors uh, and abusers in leafy parts of South Dublin, but I know an awful lot of people in working class parishes in Dublin. So um, I think the class element has really not been explored so far. And it really, um, I think it would almost embarrass us and we'd rather not go there. Yes, it is. It's a very interesting one. As you say, if, 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 we, if we have to come to some accommodation, that's definitely an element that would have to be looked at. One other figure who looms large in the book is Sean Brady and people will mm. know Sean Brady and you you you'd access to him Derek I think through a family connection in Cavan you'd a number of meetings with him and very interesting meetings I have to say and they they really uh, light up the book one thing that struck me about Sean Brady from it and and even at the time he certainly did not uh, sorry I suppose I should point out Sean Brady was uh, he was present as a young curate, I think, taking notes at one of the interviews of one of the victims of uh, Brendan Smith, one of the most notorious paedophiles to emerge from the church. This would have been back in the 70s. And it subsequently came back to haunt him, perhaps when he was on the cusp of of, um, of being the primate of all Ireland, people would suggest, but very one of the highest figures in the church. But what struck me about him was he did not perhaps do the right thing back in the 70s. but to have done so would have taken an exceptional individual at the time. Definitely. I mean, I had four meetings with him and Brady is really an ambivalent figure. And I was constantly questioning myself as I met him, because as you said, I have a family connection. His, My uncles and him used to play football in Cavan together and his family would have known my family very distantly. Um, but um, so, yeah, I was... As a journalist, I knew he doesn't really talk to a lot of people, but I said, look, this is me. Would you like to take a chance? So we had four meetings. Um, he will always be an ambivalent figure. He knows he is probably the most hated cleric in Ireland. He knows he will go to his grave with that. And he knows he is viewed as sort of a, the ultimate, you know, canon lawyer. He put sort of the, the letter of church law before and the, the reputation of the institution he worked for ahead of the welfare of children. He knows all of this. And he, I saw him as we talked, some of it was, was some of his defences were crumbling, but he will very much remain, I think somebody told me, he will remain a, a creature of the church. He would always, somebody I know who knows him said he would always do what he had promised. He would obey the church, do exactly what he's supposed to do. And while he has some conflict now in hindsight, because he really does see the pain he's caused, I think, um, but he knows he can do nothing about it. But 
I, I, I found myself over and over again asking, why is he such a provocative figure? He really, I mean, for, clearly for people who were abused because Brendan Smith remained in, in circulation until the 90s, it's quite clear this is an unforgivable action and inaction by, by Brady. But I thought perhaps, I, I, I reflected quite a long time on this, and why is, what is it about Sean Brady that gets to us so much? Partly it's because Brendan Smith died shortly into his first prison sentence, so this notion of somebody paying for their, doing their time, we were robbed of that. But I think it's because Sean Brady reminds us of our own inaction, in a, in a sort of, a, just in a general sense, reminds many of us anyway. He's, became, he's become a lightning rod, I, I guess, because what did he do? He just did nothing. Did he say anything? No. Did he know it was in his interest to say nothing? Yes, that's why he did it. And did it harm him? No, until that eventually was his undoing. And he's a tragic figure and he always will be. I, don't, I won't say I've, I feel sorry for him, but he was a product of a certain system. He acted in, as he was, he reacted as that system wanted him to do. He hurt many people as a result, but he is a product of Ireland. He is an Irish person. and. Did he do something that was so different? I mean, there were at least 30 other people who knew about Brendan Smith, possibly entire neighborhoods and townlands in Cavan. And this isn't me being whataboutism, it's just saying that Brent, Cardinal Brady, although he was a cardinal, although he was the head of the Catholic Church, he slotted perfectly into how Ireland dealt with problems like this at the time, which is don't deal with it. Yeah, and by contrast, then you also met Kevin Hegarty, a man who was more or less banished because he did raise awkward questions back in the day. He ended up in Bell Mullet. Yeah, I mean, Cardinal Brady was, I, I challenged him really. He said he was always a humble man. And I said, it's interesting how you got to the top of the church by being so humble. I said, maybe you were ambitious. And he denied this. But, you know, I think he, he developed a reputation as a safe pair of hands. Whereas Kevin Hegarty was the head of, he was the editor for a short term of Intercom, which was the Irish Catholic Bishops in-house magazine. And he was, as you say, publishing articles and raising questions in the early 90s. And um, yeah, they were gaslighting him within a few issues, saying, you're the problem, you're demoralizing priests, you're a disgrace, it is not your place to ask these questions. So, the, you know, the, the system struck back and he was banished to Mayo. And he says, now I spoke to him during the week and he said, actually, that was probably the best thing that ever happened for me because I was, I'm back with people in a real place with real problems and I'm making hopefully a real difference. And I'm in connection with a, a deeper and older Catholic tradition here. This is not the mid-19th century defensive clerical Catholic church that he's a part of. He feels he's part of an older tradition that goes back much further. And so he was banished, his life and his, his reputation was damaged and his career was in one way put to an end. But yeah, he says, I think in hindsight, he will emerge and something new will emerge. You know, Brady's church is dying and collapsing and something older is perhaps going to re-emerge. It's too early to say yet, but Hegarty um, wasn't the company man. He paid a price, but I think he, he he's glad it worked out as it did. Yeah, it's very interesting. One other thing, Derek, that has always interested me in, in, in recent years, um, the whole abuse scandals and the impact it had on the church, and I'm using that term loosely in terms of the worshippers, people, everybody, mm. the whole impact it had. Would it, would the decline that we've witnessed have come about naturally irrespective of those huge and tragic um, revelations that came out? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I, 
I, I, it's only since I've left Ireland that I look in on Irish Catholicism and I realise just how weird it is. I mean, it is this bizarre sort of holdover of 19th century Victorian defensiveness. And we, it's, been, it's been so successful, people don't even realise that it's a 19th century invention. We don't even realise that it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, Guinness in Ireland and Guinness in Nigeria are two very different drinks. You know, there's a basic formula and then it's adjusted to local taste. And Catholicism survived and thrived in Ireland because it adjusted to local taste. So, and it, it, it remained a very pastoral church. It was very close to the people. I mean, anyone who's gone to a funeral, you know, we do funerals well, we say, because it's close to the people, it's close to their emotional needs at this particular time. And that's why I think that part has survived, because that's still filling a need. But a lot of it, I mean, when I look back at my old religion books, I mean, it was it was embarrassing. And I think almost the irony is that the Catholicism was sort of a, it educated so many of us, and then it almost educated us beyond having any time for what it was offering, because it was still a very 50s, 60s, just a very patronizing. I don't know how you felt in religion because I just felt endlessly patronized. And when I went to Poland for the first time for the Irish Times uh, many years ago, I was talking to some people and they mentioned the term uh, the, the club of Catholic intellectuals. And I laughed. I said, what do you mean Catholic intellectuals? And they said, no, in communist times, the Catholic Church was a huge, it was a, it was a safe space, we'd call it now, where people would go and talk and think and read journals. So the notion of Catholicism having an intellectual element, it, I just laughed at it. And that's when I began to realize that the arrogance and the, the ignorance and the narcissism to think that, you know, because we've had Catholicism in Ireland since St. Patrick, since the fifth century, that we're somehow the origin of the species. No, Irish Catholicism, it collapsed under its own judgmental. I mean, we literally, we've all become really good. Every time everyone lashes out at the Catholic Church and condemns people, I mean, that's, we've learned the lesson that they taught us. Uh, people who condemn bishops and berate Cardinal Brady, they're just giving back the lashing that they felt themselves. So, um, and I, I think at the end of the day, I don't know if you were ever an altar boy, but I, I used to be an altar boy. And in the sacristy, they always had these blocks of green stuff. It was called Oasis. It was these blocks. Mm. You'd put the flowers, you'd stick the flowers in and then you'd soak That's it nice. full of water. And it was, it looked really solid once the water was in it, but once it dried out, you could just take off a bit and rub it between your fingers and it would just turn to dust. So something that looked solid, when you remove the, the fluid and the life force from it, it just crumbles away. So I think it was inevitable that it would crumble away. It was a very narrow, judgmental, I would say stupid kind of Catholicism. And there are very other varieties out there. And people are just a bit too sophisticated for what it has on offer. And unless it is able to adjust its formula and adjust to what people's needs are, it has just made itself surplus to requirements. It has, and it'll be interesting, as you say, to... Witness, or maybe by right, all of us should, in one form or another, resolve to take part in whatever accommodation can and should now be made with the past and where we've come from in that respect. Derek Scally, The Best Catholics in the World, published by Sandy Cove. It's an absorbing read, folks, and I have to say it's written in a way that keeps you coming back for more. Derek, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mick. That's it for today, folks. I also want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thanks you for listening, and we'll see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. 
feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are like interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.